square fielder. He's gone to the dogs. Welcome once again to the Gone to the Dogs podcast. This old gravelly voice belongs to Steve Fielder. I'm sure you know that by now if you've been one of my listeners. We're now recording our 80th or or playing our 80th episode of the Gone to the Dogs podcast. It doesn't seem possible that we've <laughs> logged that many so far, but uh, it's been a great ride. I've enjoyed it all the way, and I think that you're going to especially enjoy today. Uh, you, the listener, and I are going to get to, to uh, acquaint ourselves with our guest, a guy that um, I, when I first saw his writings on the Coon Hunting Conversations group page on Facebook, I said, hey, this guy's got things to say. I I really enjoy it, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Now, I need to ask you, Chuck, for the correct pronunciation of your last name. <laughs> yeah, it's not a real common name. It's uh, Pudel, like pew, uh, church pew that you sit in and Dell computer. It's a Czechoslovakian name and not very common. I got you. Well, <laughs> I didn't want to call you Puddle. Or, Most do. <laughs> <laughs> or anything like that. Believe it or not, by my name, Fielder, you would think it's, it's so common, like a right fielder in a baseball game, but I get all kinds of variations of that. Fielder, uh, fi- Fiddler, <laughs> uh, Fiedler, <laughs> all over. But uh, so, Chuck, Pudel or Pudel? Pudel. Pudel. All right, we should have done that before we got started. But <laughs> like I told you before we started this thing, Chuck, it's uh, it's a very organic show. So we we uh, practice as we go. Well, Chuck, um, you became acquainted uh, with the Coon Hunting Conversations group page when? Do you recall? It's been over a year ago. Okay. To give our listeners a little background, if you haven't uh, participated in that page, I'm trying to think how many years ago it was that we started that page, and it's been something like a mole, maybe five years, six, time gets away. I do know that right now we have 10,610 members, uh, or actually 15 members, to that group page on Facebook, it's a free deal. You have to you have to join, and you have to answer three questions. I'm not going to tell you what those are, so you study before you go on. But we try to uh, keep the people that really aren't interested in coon hunting out of it. So we ask them a few fundamental questions that any coon hunter would be able to answer. But um, I do know that uh, in just checking uh, today, that in the last seven days, Chuck, think about this. In the last seven days, we've had 7,746 active members on that website in the last seven days. Now, of course, wow. all the, isn't that amazing? That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot. And, uh, of course, not all of them are contributing, as you do, uh, but uh, they certainly are on there reading the post and so forth. And one thing I'm, I'm really uh, fortunate to have Alan Bridges. Uh, he's from there in the same state you are. You live in Georgia, don't you? I live in Alabama, work oh. in Georgia. Oh, okay, okay. Well, anyway, we want to get that bio on you here in just a second. But Alan Bridges lives over around Athens, Georgia. He'll tell you real quick he's a Bulldog fan. <laughs> but he uh, he's the one that looks after the page. And uh, every once in a while he has to put on his sheriff's badge. It is a conversational page, as the name implies. It's not for selling or buying. Uh, we do post announcements on there and so forth that we believe are, uh, you know, general interest to uh, the readers. But anyway, Alan does a great job helping me uh, kind of police the site. But 
you know, really, we haven't had very, very few problems. It's just a good place for coon hunters to go and to uh, to com- converse with other hunters and and ask questions without getting jumped on by the keyboard commandos, so to speak, that are out there on the on the net. But uh, Chuck, I noticed right away with your writing that you have, as I said before good things to say, and I'm glad you're on there, and I'm glad that you're posting, and I'm really glad that you consented to come on uh, to the podcast today. Would you mind giving my listeners a little bit of a a bio, a background of who you are, uh, what you do, how you got involved in the hounds, and just generally, you know, acquaint, uh, uh, get our members acquainted with you? Okay. I grew up in southern Michigan. Uh, and I did not grow up in a very strong hunting and fishing family. I did a little bit of fishing, did no hunting growing up, but I had an intense uh, desire to do it. So I did a lot of reading. I read anything I could get my hands on. was a big uh, Jeff Cooper reader, uh, some of the other sports of field, field and stream. Uh, and then any book I could get my hands on that had anything to do with hunting, trapping, and especially with dogs. One thing that's interesting, I had a little bookcase in my room, and in that bookcase was the book Where the Red Fern Grows. And on the cover of the book was a picture of a red fern. I assumed that the book was geared towards girls or something about ferns, flowers. I never touched the book. Really? Um, which kind of missed me <laughs> off to this day. But uh, in sixth grade, I was not a... Uh, not a very good student, and uh, there was a, a little bookcase in my sixth grade class, and there was a book called Sounder about a young uh, African-American kid that Coon hunted. It was somewhat of a civil rights story, but he had a crossed-up uh, bulldog and redbone that him and his dad Coon hunted with, and I was kind of intrigued. I probably read that book 20 times instead of doing my assignments. Yeah. I haven't read um, the book, but I did see the film. Yeah, and like yeah. all books and films, the book's better than the film. So I was, you know, somewhat mm-hmm. uh, influenced by that. Uh, grew up in a good, strong Christian uh, uh, environment. And in 1987, when I graduated high school, I joined the Army. And that's where I came down to Fort Benning, Georgia, did basic training, my uh, infantry training, airborne school. And then I went to the Ranger Indoctrination Program and got stationed here with the 3rd Ranger Battalion. Um, I stuck out like a sore thumb. I was a bit of an anomaly, um, because I did not drink. I didn't go to clubs. It wasn't out carousing. Um, and I did not like this place because it was very little for me to do. Um, but not long after being here, I got a a guy entered my squad named David Rees, who's from Woodstock, Georgia. And he was pretty big into bass fishing, had done some tournament fishing and went and did a few times of fishing off a bank with him. And then he bought a John boat, 12 foot John boat with a 28 pound thrust trolling motor. And we started fishing. And that's when I started liking it here. Started fishing the Chattahoochee and some of the little lakes around here. Uh, in 89, we were alerted and fought in Panama. And uh, Dave ended up in close, very close range, got shot three times, lived to tell about it. He had a hole in his right shoulder big enough you could stick your fist in. Mm. He ended up uh, getting mm. out of the army. And uh, he called me up when he got back home. He said, hey, Poodell, come up here and uh, get this John boat. I don't need it anymore. And uh, so I went up and got that boat. And I about, if I wasn't working, I lived in that boat. I fished uh, about every chance I could get. Um, Really learned to love being on the water down here. Mm -hmm. And ended up, uh, had another fella ended up in my squad named Shannon McKinney, a Kansas boy, one of the toughest human beings I've ever met. And, uh. I had just gotten out of the Army Ranger School, and he said, hey, Chuck, he said, uh, get a rifle. We're going to deer hunt. I had no knowledge of deer hunting, um, had a desire to do it. So we went and got our hunter safety uh, cards and started deer hunting. For, uh, five minutes into my first deer hunt, I was able to shoot a little six-point. So <laughs> got where I was then as yeah. much into fishing or hunting as I was fishing. Uh, ended up meeting my current my, my wife, my only wife, and started dating. She loved to fish. Uh, we did a lot of fishing together, and her dad was in a club in Alabama that um, deer hunted, and mm-hmm. they hunted with dogs. And I'd never heard of such thing. I didn't know it was legal. Let me interrupt you just a minute, Chuck. You said you were from southern Michigan. Now, yes. I lived up there for 22 years. Where were you from up there? Jackson. Oh, okay. You were east of me then. I was over in the Kalamazoo area. 
Okay, I, I used to wrestle over there. Oh, really? Yeah. Yep. We uh, well, the United Kennel Club headquarters is in uh, Kalamazoo, and I worked for them for about all oh, full time about sixteen years. So, yeah, I'm familiar with Jackson. There's a great ice cream parlor there, Jackson. We used to stop with, and do you you remember that? Jackson All Star Dairy, and it was called Loudon 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 Jacksons, and then Jackson All Star Dairy. Absolutely, that's one thing I missed about Michigan. They had some of the best ice cream shops. <laughs> <laughs> Every little town seemed like it had one. Okay, well that was a rabbit path I took you down there. So. Okay, <laughs> all right. Well, go ahead. Well, my father-in-law ran the Deer Dogs, and uh, I ended up going with him as a guest a few times, and then the. Uh, you know, I was an enlisted soldier in the Ranger Battalion, was a, a sergeant, and the Army offered me a scholarship, um, said I could get out, go to college full-time, go through uh, college ROTC, and then I would, you know, come back in as a commissioned officer. So I worked construction, went to school at Columbus State, and my father-in-law paid for me a membership in the Deer Club. And uh, when I ran the Deer Dogs, I was on my way to fish one day, and I saw a hound dog, no collar on, run across the road. And I pulled over, called him, he came to me, and that became my first deer dog. I called him Oscar. And uh, before I was done, I had, I don't know, about 15 deer dogs in the, in the backyard. And, and I enjoyed running the deer dogs. I enjoyed training them. Uh, but it was a, a kind of a pain in the backside because you would lose your dogs. Uh, they get killed on highways. And I, I did that for a number of years. And some may have read the story. It's in the uh, one of the coon hunting magazines where I met a young African-American kid. I was walking through the projects. He walked out and said, hey, ain't you the hound dog man? And a young kid's name was Irvin. And uh, one thing led to another. We started deer hunting together. And at the end of one season, he said, Charlie, we should coon hunt. And I said, what do you know about coon hunting? He said, well, I watched the movie Where the Red Fern Grows. And if we coon hunt, we can do it year round. And uh, so I said, okay, uh, let's look into it. And I found a local dog jockey and bought a blue tick female that would run everything in the woods. And uh, we knew absolutely nothing. We would turn that joker loose on Fort Benning and we would follow it. Everywhere it went, we went. How we didn't get snake bit, eaten by gators or permanently lost, I don't know. But I did that, I don't know, a couple of months and I about got tired of coon hunting because we never saw a raccoon. Um, but I ended up, I was deer hunting. I actually had got commissioned as a Lieutenant 95 was deer hunting, fell asleep in a deer stand because I'd been in the field all week and slept, woke up. It was pitch black. And, uh, I said, well, I'm just going to sit here for a few minutes, see what I hear moving. And I heard a deep, just big old ball mouth, a uh, couple of ridge lines over. Um, and I started listening. I said, man, what a coyote. I listened again. I heard him open up. I said, that's not a coyote. That's a hound. And then I heard a kind of a more squealy mouth open up behind it. It was a black and tan female behind a blue tick. And I said, that's a coon hunter. So I got down out of my deer stand, ran to my truck, um, started listening. I drive down a ridgeline. I went down in the bottom, found a, a truck with a dog box, and I waited till the coon hunter come out. And that's my current coon hunt partner, one of absolute, uh, not one of, the absolute best friend I've had in my life, Bobby Phillips. Um, and we talked and he invited me to coon hunt with him and I was hooked and I've been doing it on and off. Once the deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan really kicked in, I got out, um, early two thousands. But when I retired in, uh, 17, I moved back down uh, from Arkansas, back down to, uh, Georgia, Alabama area. I live over in, in Phoenix city and I, you know, linked back up with Bobby and we have gone back to hunt together and raising and training red bones and doing some competition hunts. Well, I'm definitely going to have to stop by and see you on one of my trips. My uh, listeners know that uh, my running buddy is a guy that I met through UKC. He was a field rep when I was there and uh, his name is Arnold Nubbin Moore. We call him Nubbin. He's a black and tan man. He lives in Sterrett, Alabama, just kind of southeast of Birmingham, but I go right through Columbus, Georgia, and, and uh, Phoenix City, Alabama there um, every time I go to Nubbins, which is several times a year, so we're going to have to hook up sometime when I'm up that way. Well, I'd love to do it. Yeah, for sure. Well, I tell you, uh, Chuck, you you ha- seem to have a lot of good hunting stories. Uh I'm kind of interrupting you here, and I don't want to. Let's go back because I don't think we've gotten to the point where you got into some dogs of your own. 
of your home. Okay. Uh, so when I was in, I retired uh, as lieutenant colonel out of um, Northwest Arkansas. I've been the professor of military science up there. Left there. I did one more year in the Middle East, went back and retired. And uh, I don't know, I just got an urge to to hunt with dogs again, but I didn't really have the land to coon hunt. So I started dabbling in squirrel dogs, got a couple of little tree and feists and played with them. And I don't know, the itch hit me. Uh, they were nice, but they weren't hound dogs. Um, so when I moved back down, I hunted with Bobby a few times and I, I just, I don't know why I'd always had a, a like for the red bone. Um, kids can't explain it, but just did. Yeah. And, uh, I don't remember how I linked up, but I found a man in Missouri had a, uh, a male dog direct out of uh, the G man and he was giving him away. I had a friend that was up there duck hunting and he said, well, I can stop and pick up the hound. And he brought it down to me and I hunted him. He was kind of on again, off again. I knew he wasn't going to suit me. Ended up uh, giving him away, but the hunt started. I kind of decided up front, kind of you know, came up with a little mission statement said, if I'm going to do this, I don't just want to hunt. I want to hunt. I want to train. I want to breed. And I want to try to produce as good a red bones as anybody in the country. Um, I was a, I did some school teaching after I retired and I was a science teacher and I tried to somewhat take a scientific approach on looking at genetics. uh, You know, if I'm going to breed, um, what's going to be the best uh, method and I started, most people look for a stud dog. As I was studying, I kind of decided I wanted dogs out of Moonlight Cape. And I knew mm-hmm. she was a top 10 reproducer on the female side. Bobby found a, a male dog down in the, in the panhandle of Florida out of Moonlight Cape, out of uh, Aftershock. We rode down and uh, I was pretty you know, stoked about it. But the man pulled the dog out of the box and he was in rough looking shape. He was mm. wormy, uh, ear infections. And he didn't look like much. He was kind of an ugly hound. Bobby gave $500 for him at five years old. And I said, this is, you know, probably going to be a $500 shot. But we brought him back. I started uh, treating his ear infections. And the first time I hunted him, I knew we had something. And got him him back in good health. And I just liked the way he hunted. Decided that was going to be something I'd get some pups out of. And started looking for the right female. I went through a bunch of them. Ended up with a... uh, Jericho female that I bred to and had my first litter, um, which my Dottie female that I took uh, fourth place um, just recently at the Georgia State um, on Saturday night is out of that cross. Well, so, you know, again, I'll interrupt you there, Chuck, but uh, in, in my uh, upbringing in West Virginia, uh, at one time when I was a young hunter, uh, Especially after I came home from the Air Force, I did four years in the Air Force. I was in Japan three years. Came awesome. home. Thanks and, for your service. Oh, thank you for yours for sure. And uh, I, 1973 is when I came back home and spent about a ten year period there, and hunted a lot, a lot of pleasure hunting, a lot of competition hunting, and that was Redbone Country at that time. But the names that I would bring it to the conversation would be older names that you've probably seen on some of the older pedigrees, but uh, Blakesley's Northern Chief, uh, Spoon River Andy, um, Bruce's Big John, uh, Tucker's Ruby. These were all very, very uh, well-known, popular red bone names back in those uh, late 70s, early 80s. And uh, so we had a lot of red dogs in in my area there. And uh, uh, but anyway, so a little parallel there between our yep. experiences. Yeah. Well, go right ahead with the story. Okay. This so yeah, once, uh, once we got that first cross, then we just started looking for some more dogs. Uh, I really wanted to get a stud dog. Um, they don't come cheap and they don't come easy. Um, but I started, uh, interacting with a number of the, the more well-known, um, red dog men in the country. And as luck would have it, I met Ricky Vickers up in Kentucky. Um, he's got a real good solid reputation as a hunter. And he ended up, uh, got a hold of me and said he had come across a couple of dogs that he was, you know, looking at competition hunting. And he actually had more than he needed. And he had a, a good young red male and asked if I was, uh, interested in hunting him. And, uh, so Bobby and I bought him. He's direct out of, uh, the Rocky dog and, uh, 
um, out of the turkey dog on the bottom side. We call him Iceman. We got, matter of fact, we got a win out of him at the Georgia State. And well, you know, I I'm sure our Redbone fanciers out there recognize these names immediately. And I'll confess, you know, there was a time when I thought I knew all the popular stud dogs of all the breeds because you know I was so involved with them, but. Uh, certainly not all of them, but many of them. But uh, these are all names that I'm not familiar with. But I'm sure my listeners that are Redbone people know exactly what you're uh, or who you're talking about. I think there's uh, what you just mentioned is an interesting point. Uh, so when I got into coon hunting in the '90s, um, when I met Bobby it was '95, and it wasn't long after meeting him that I subscribed to the Coonhound Bloodlines and the Cooner. And I would mm-hmm. read those. Back then, those magazines were much thicker, and oh, they yeah. were full from front to back with half-page, full-page, quarter-page stud dog ads. Yes. So even if you didn't hunt a breed, if you read those magazines, and I can still remember, uh, you name the breed, and I can probably name a lot of the stud dogs from right. that breed from mm-hmm. the 90s up until about 2000. Mm-hmm. Well. Now people spend more time on social media, less time reading the magazines, and the magazines are not a stick, and they don't have near as much the advertising. Exactly. So if you ask me right now who are the top stud dogs in you know whatever breed, I probably don't know it as well as I did you know twenty five years ago. Yeah, that's for sure. And you know there was a time when those magazines were our only means of communication. True. You know, and we've often said on this podcast, the whole Coonhound world waited for the November issue of the American Cooner magazine to come out because it would have the current ACHA world champion on the cover and the (laughs) results of the ACHA world championship. That was the only world championship in that day. And yep. so no, a news traveled much slower. Now it's at warp speed, <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah. If you, know you didn't read it a, an hour ago, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, it's old news. I would read them cover to cover. Uh, I was a young lieutenant, got uh, sent up to Fort Bragg, and I was going to coon hunt when I got there. No sooner did I get there, I got sent to Haiti doing peacekeeping kind of stuff for – uh, almost half a year, and my wife would mail me the uh, the coon hunting magazines, the various ones, and I would read them until uh, I just about had them memorized. Um, just you know, it was the only only coon hunting I could get my teeth in right then. Well, I'm sure many of our military uh, can identify with that, Chuck. You know, I spent three years in Japan with no coon hunting at all. <laughs> all I had was the magazines, you know, and yep. it was during that time that I began to submit a few articles to Full Cry magazine and uh, they weren't good by any stretch. <laughs> but uh, you know, I just uh, that was a lifeline, you know, to the yep. sport. Of course my dad was active hunting back home and you know his letters and all sustained uh, kept the fire burning so to speak, but uh, yeah, well, Fort Bragg, I lived in Raleigh for uh, a period when I uh, retired at the American Kennel Club, so kind of know what that hunting's like a little bit. But Fort Bragg was probably some of the toughest coon hunting uh, I did because when I got it was in, I got up there, it was my wife, she born and raised in Phoenix City, her first time ever being away from home. And we bought a little house in a in a subdivision out in the country. And I wasn't gone a matter of weeks. A hurricane in 96 hit that area. She was without power uh, for 16 days, no water. She had to kind of rough it. But when I came back and started hunting, that hurricane had laid pine trees down like pickup sticks all over post. That might have been Hurricane Hugo that came up the coast up that way. Whichever one was in 96. I can't Um, remember the year for sure. But it... uh, so when you would hunt, those coons could get up on them, you know, felled, you know, knock down pine trees, and they're running three, four feet off the ground, and mm-hmm. they just get dog. You know, a good dog struggled um, because it was just. And then once you had a dog tree, getting from the road to the tree was a took an act of Congress because there was so much, uh, you know, trees down and briars growing up where there was, you know, now sunlight. So it was brag was some tough hunting for me. Oh, I bet, I bet. So you got that pretty much uh, established you as a Redbone man. Yeah, you know, actually, 
I hunted dogs for uh, a fellow out of Waycross, Russell Lee, um, good man. And I hunted some for him for a while. I didn't have the money right then for my own, you know, high dollar dog. So I just kind of became a handler and I earned a reputation as a pretty solid dog trainer and had a couple of guys I was hunting for. But I found at that time getting my hands on a good red dog was hard. I think I had two of them. Uh, the red hot dusty dog, I think he, he either won or finished real high in the three points. Uh, back in the late nineties, um, uh, Ronnie Copeland ended up with him. He was the first red dog I ever trained and I uh, ended up, got him back to Russell and he grand knighted him out and, and then Ronnie got him and I had another dog. He ended up in Texas, but after that, I started hunting walkers. I had a PKC silver champion, uh, Walker dog that I hunted, um, and did a little competition hunt with for a man named Glenn Rogers. Glenn has since he's in his seventies now got out of coon hunting. He's got. Back, uh, into squirrel dogs and he owns the 2020 festus who's uh world champion uh squirrel dog one of the uh the cur dogs mountain cur i think it is um but i you know so i handled dogs i ended up more more english and walkers than i was red bounce and you know, i almost came to the conclusion i wasn't gonna be able to get a good red bound and i don't know i guess the uh, some of the red bone breeders did their homework because when i got back into this i actually found it easier um, to get good red dogs. So, you know, the guys like Wade Coons and Ricky Vickers and, you know, some of the other breeders nationally have done, you know, Royce Taylor and some of those have, have gotten a pretty good solid line of hunting red dogs that you can pick from now. Well, you mentioned Royce, and that's a name that I recall very vividly from my days. You know, when I was in uh, in uh the UKC registry, there were quite a few Redbone uh, people. Harry Omedian from Michigan, for instance. Danny, yeah, He's Big been very helpful to me. Harry's been definitely helpful. Yeah, Harry's a super guy. Danny Biggert over in Ohio, Dwayne yep. Buff, um, you know, on and on and on. We had a field rep named Fred Lubert. Uh, uh, a frequent guest on this podcast is Fred Moran, the, Mo the Redbone man. Have you ever talked oh, yeah. to Fred? I've never spoke to him personally. Yeah, he's, he's a, a great guy, about 85 now, I think, and still coon hunts almost every night, <laughs> sometimes by himself. So he's quite quite the character. All right. Well, there's a couple things that I want to talk to you about. Number one, uh, you um, obviously, um, you talked about being in school and not being a good student. Somewhere along the line, you learned to be a wordsmith. You learned to write. <laughs> was that Uncle Sam that uh, taught you that, or, or was that just something you picked up but through your – you know, I was always a voracious reader myself. You know, I used to laugh about reading the cereal box at the breakfast table in the mornings. You know, anything I could get my hands on. And then I, you know, got into writing when I went to the uh, United Kennel Club. They had a, a column there from the field operations department called Coon Talk. And I was told when I was hired in there in 1983 that that would be my responsibility. So uh, from that start is how I got involved in writing. And, you know, it, it's, uh, it's been kind of my, my life's work. Uh, how'd that all begin for you? It's, it's interesting because when I was uh, a young student, elementary, uh, up through middle school, you know, I was definitely a poor student. Of all my brothers and sisters, I was, I was the dumbest by far. Um, but I didn't mind writing, but it seemed like every time I wrote, I didn't get uh, very, very solid grades. So that kind of turned me off. One thing I did pick up, I had uh, my grandfather on my dad's side was a World War II vet. He was a phenomenal storyteller, um, kind of like a northern uh, Jerry Clower, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, just told a lot. Of, and he had a lot of hunting and fishing kind of stories, stories of, you know, goofy things he did in the Army. And I kind of adopted his storytelling. So I always liked telling stories. Um, but then when I got the scholarship, I remember in the second English class, the mandatory English class I had, I got scuffed up on a few of my early papers and then something kind of clicked like, okay, read this English book and, you know, get a little better on your grammar and sentence structure, applied that. And then as an officer in the army, as you start coming up, you have to do the professional writing. You got to write reports and everything from awards and all that. And as time went on, I learned a little bit of the army writing style, the more professional. Mm -hmm. It got okay. I could hold my own. 
when I was on my way to Iraq in 2007, we had, uh, I was going to run a counterinsurgency team. Uh, they called them MIT teams. And General Petraeus came and spoke to a whole group. And he kind of drew a parallel. He said, we lost in Vietnam, not because we got outmatched on the battlefield. We lost in Vietnam because we lost at home. We lost the will to fight. And he said, one of your jobs is to keep the people at home without violating, you know, operational security. Keep them involved uh, in what the good stories are. Tell people what you're doing and tell them the good stories. So I came up with a little, it was kind of a distro list, just a list of of names of emails of people back home, people that I went to church with, family members. And I would write a monthly kind of an update of what I was doing on the ground in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And it kind of took the storytelling from my grandfather to just writing. And it surprised me that it got more uh, attention than I expected. People really liked it. People, they wanted other people to get added. Uh, so I did the same thing in Afghanistan and, you know, as years went on, then Facebook showed up and I just started <laughs> writing small stories and I, you know, I try to write some things of a scientific nature, some things of a comical nature and some of a more instructional. And I don't, I guess to my surprise, cause I'm, I still don't consider myself a, a good writer, but I've gotten probably more, uh, compliments and encouragement than I ever expected. Well, you know, the, the first of your stories that really uh, drew my attention, and you mentioned this earlier here, is the stories about the young man there, that young African-American uh, kid, I guess he was at the time that you met him, uh, and uh, those adventures, and it, it kind of... Uh, reminded me of the old man and the and the kid or the old man and the boy the ruark stories there from from north carolina i don't know if you've ever uh, read any of those but uh, uh, i have it's always uh, it's always good i think i, I uh, included a, a chapter in or an essay in my book gone to the dogs a coon hunter's journey we'll put a shameless plug in there for that uh, called uh, Too Old to Quit, and it was about an elderly uh, hunter and his grandson. And it was a fictional piece, but, you know, with a with a hook in it. And um, I enjoyed writing that because uh, my own grandfathers were not coon hunters, and both of them uh, passed when I was, oh, I, I was six years old when my dad's uh, father died and a little older, probably eight or nine when my mother's father died. So I really didn't have much contact with my grandfathers. But, uh, uh, you know, I uh, I enjoy that connection. And those were some really good uh, uh, stories that you did. And, and that's what first attracted me to, to your writing. No, I appreciate it. Well, one of the uh, ironies or that kind of funny how it worked out so when i met bobby bobby would have been he's i'm 54 he was younger than i am now he's probably in his later 40s and he told the story it's been a few years he was i think because i asked him did your dad coon on he said no i said well how did you get into it he was 10 or 11 years old at a store and saw some dogs i believe and it was a middle-aged elderly um african-american gentleman black gentleman and so you're talking back in the 19, it'd been late 1950s. And he talked to the man about his dogs. And the man said, I know your dad. Um, if your parents will let you hunt, I'll come pick you up and you can coon hunt with me. And Bobby talks about him today. You'd think it happened yesterday um, about a man named Uncle Charlie Kroll. And he said, uh, Charlie Kroll always referred to him. He always get his Captain Bob. And he said, that's who he learned to coon hunt with. He said, on the weekends, he hunted all night long. You didn't get to hunt during the week. But he hunted all the way up into his, you know, later 20s with old Uncle Charlie. And he can, Bobby can to this day, he'll tell you about, you know, he said back then they weren't registered dogs. It'd be a half bird dog and half hound dog. And he can tell you the dog's name. He can tell you how he tracked. He can mimic how he sounded on a tree. And he'll tell the story how uh, when his dogs got older. Um, I think it was a man in Iowa. And Uncle Charlie uh, ordered a, a, a plot. And he said the Beatles uh -oh. had just gotten big, and he named the plot Ringo. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, what a dog. And he said, from then on, Charlie was a, Uncle Charlie was a, uh, was a plot man. Um, but then years later, when I met Irvin, um, watching Bobby interact with Irvin, it's almost like it had come full circle that now he's, uh, you know, middle-aged and he's hunting with a young kid out of the projects and kind of returning the, the favor that was given to him, you know, 40 years yeah. before. How about that? Come I met with, uh, this was interesting too. So I had talked to Irvin. We lost contact with each other. I think I'd, I saw him right before I went to Afghanistan in 2009 or 10 and ended up, uh, left, uh, was out in Arkansas for eight years. And I tried finding him. I found where his mom had passed away. He, he went by a different name on social media. And so I finally linked back up with him and we went and talked and I said, we've kind of got a unique story. I, I do a little writing for a hobby. Would you care if I, you know, wrote our story? He said, by all means. So when I wrote it, I think it was the national Redbone Coonhound page that I shared it on first. And within okay. days, it had over 2000 shares mm-hmm. and Irvin literally cried. He said, I never expected that people would, would really, you know, care about our story. And we met up, uh, I was coming home from work. I was teaching then and I met up and I said, here's what's interesting. I said, skin color never had anything to do with nothing. I say, if you would have been a, a young white kid and would ask, you know, to hunt or fish or whatever, I would have, I, I don't think it would have mattered to you if I was black. I said, but part of why that story has gained the attention it is, is because I'm white and you're black. And I said, we live in a day where there's those in the media that will definitely promote you know, racism for the you know sake of promoting it. I said, what people don't tell is the good stories that there are people that are, that are great friends um, and have been. And I said, more of the good stories. And he laughed. He said, you're right. He said, he said, you know, be honest with you. He said, I didn't even as a kid think about the whole racial aspect of it. He said, now I kind of understand. But it's, you know, it's interesting how that whole thing played out. Well, it is. And I don't know why uh, I've always uh, those kind of stories have always uh, uh, drawn me in. I love the writings of William Faulkner. And and when I travel through northern Mississippi on my way over to the White River each year, you know, and I go through some of those areas that he wrote about, of course, they're vastly different from what it was back in the day. But you see that connection uh, William had with the, you know, in the hunting groups and and, uh, Sam Fathers, I believe, was... uh, was the name of the one character that was such a, uh, you know, he was like the dog man on the on the deer hunts in in the big woods and uh, and all. And I I just I don't know. Um, you mentioned uh, that book Sounder, which I do need to pick it up and read it. But I loved that movie, um, you know. And and there's just when I first went to. Uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but I'm just going to open my heart a little bit. When I first went to uh, down through the low country of South Carolina, uh, my first experience was on a Greyhound bus going from West Virginia as a college junior to uh, Lakeland, Florida to attend college there. And I went through that low country and I saw those sharecropper homes and I saw the cotton fields and I saw the bales of cotton. And I saw uh, back in those days in the mid sixties, I saw wagons loaded with uh, cotton bales and things like that. There was just such a romance to me about those people and their, their, uh, culture and their, uh, you know, their closeness to the land and, and all, I don't know. I've just always, always, always been, uh, and there was another, uh, a fellow in my hometown in West Virginia, Leo Lars worked on the railroad, was a, uh, a coon hunter and always kept a great dog. And he would go to central Virginia every year and hunt with a black gentleman named Elwood Christian. And he would always bring back the stories 
of hunting with Mr. Christian and what a coon hunter he was and, and his stories that he told. And my good friend Johnny Brinkley in Tallahassee, Florida, has a good friend down there named Roosevelt, and he tells the stories that Roosevelt has shared with him and about Roosevelt. And those stories just always grab me. <laughs> I don't, yep. And I know it's not, like you say, skin color doesn't mean anything but there is a culture there there is a a story there there's a history there that just really really gets close to me so you've touched on something that i've been working on a paper probably for two years um it, so you know there's never wanting to offend um but i i do i've worked as an advisor in the middle east i like getting into a culture that's not my own um, whether it was the Iraqis, the Afghanis, the, you know, the Peshmer, whatever, in learning other cultures. It was a little surprising to me. So I lived in, in southern Michigan. Um, I went to a fairly integrated school, not too far out of, you know, Detroit and all. Um, but when you went out into the country, the country was predominantly, no, predominantly, it was all, it was white. Yeah. When I moved down here to the south and I began to travel around and look, you could go to a little small farming country town and it'd be 70% black mm -hmm. Americans. Correct. And uh, you'd see, uh, see a, you know, a man that's a, that's a black man with a straw hat on a, on a John Deere tractor and overalls. And so that kind of intrigued me. Um, as I got yes. into the coon hunting, um, I'm a minority as a coon hunter out here. The majority of the coon hunters I know in this area, um, Jimmy Lee, Tom Jackson, Ricky Hawkins, most of them are African-Americans. Um, and it's, it's interesting because when you read the coon hound magazines, you don't see a lot about that. And I almost, you know, I said, I got to find the title the, uh, unsung houndsman of the deep South swamps is mm -hmm. that there's a relation between white and black coon hunters. Um, there's a friendship. Um, yes. they hunt the same lines of dogs. They'll, uh, and I do believe that a lot of the African-American hunters are more meat hunters. They, they mm -hmm. keep what they tree and they yeah. eat what they tree. Yes. Um, but they also, they are a training ground for competition hunters. There's competition hunters will put their hand, the dogs in the hands of people. And when a dog is of, of a certain caliber, they'll buy those dogs back. And so there's a working relationship and there's a, a crossing of cultures. It's one right. of those, I want to write a paper. I want to, uh, Either that mm -hmm. or maybe even do it like a YouTube, but I don't want to offend anybody and do it wrong. So it's something, if I do it, mm -hmm. I want to do it right. Well, since we're on this subject, and I think it's very interesting, and, and, and again, uh, truthfully saying, it's been something that's always interest, uh, interested me. When I was with the PKC organization, there was a gentleman, and his name escapes me right now, uh, he was from Atlanta. He was a black gentleman. He had some really nice dogs uh, that he entered in competition in PKC. I don't believe he handled the dogs himself, uh, but he approached me in a restaurant one day in Thomasville, Georgia, where we were there for the PKC Sunshine Jamboree. And he said, Steve, I believe you could be the voice that could bridge the gap uh, between the black hunters and the white hunters, so to speak. And not that there was really a gap there, but that I think he was wanting me to approach it more from the standpoint of of encouraging the black hunters to be more involved, to be, uh, you know, because certainly uh, there were several uh, when I was in PKC uh, that were, were involved. And, boy, my memory has gone. I used to pride myself, Chuck, in being able to remember names. And if <laughs> I walked into a, a big room of coon hunters, I could almost walk around and, you know, call everybody by name. Those days are gone. <laughs> I, I mean, it'll come back around to me. Uh, K.D. Knox and his boy, and and I know listeners, uh, and I can't remember his name right now, they were from uh, Florida, coon hunters. Laronia Allen hunted a, a good dog named Undertaker, and I judged and hunted with Laronia many times. Uh, just so many, you know, but 
But um, I wish I could remember this guy's name. But he would probably applaud what you're doing with your research there and, and would encourage you to to write that book or, or whatever. Um, because certainly uh, this uh, the thing about coon hunting, it's an American sport. It was uh, founded here, you know, and uh, uh, certainly it was a sport of the rural uh, community. And uh, unfortunately, you know, we didn't get, because of communication being what it was, we didn't get to hear a lot of these stories. And, man, what a what a, a book that would be to be able to, uh, to read the stories of so many of these, um, you know, famous black coon hunters. Kind of like I relate it to the story of the Negro Baseball League. Yep. You know, the fantastic players that were involved, you know, and uh, and the Jackie Robinson story and all that. So anyway, I don't know how we got off on that, but I'm glad we did because that's a subject that's, that's pretty near and dear to me. Well, I think, uh, and that's across the board, one of the things that struck me out is there's a number of Facebook pages for coon hunting. Some better than others, some breed specific. I think uh, complimented you, not blowing smoke, but. The one you run is, is the best one out there. Most people post a picture, post a meme, post. They don't write the stories. Um, and encouraging other hunters um, to write the stories. I had I recently got involved with two kids. Um, I was an eighth grade science teacher at a very impoverished public school in Columbus. It was the first year of doing public school teaching. And uh, it was kind of an interesting story. I had a young man. Um, from Michigan. I didn't know he's from Michigan at the time. His dad, uh, uh, died of a, of a heroin overdose. And mm. he ended up, uh, down here in a, in a rough neighborhood, but he saw my dog box on my truck leaving school. And the next day he saw me he said, Hey, uh, you couldn't hunt with blue ticks. I'm thinking, why does this kid in an inner city school know anything about about blue ticks? And I said, no, I hunt with red bones. What do you know about coon hunting? Well, he had done some competition hunting, um, as a kid, before his dad passed away and moved down here, um, but I had him, and then later he had a girlfriend. Um, last year, they coon hunted with me, and they said, well, we've seen that you've been on some podcasts, you're writing articles, and you know some of your stories are getting in magazines, and we want to be in a magazine. Or, right? I said, well, you can do the work yourself. So they wrote their own stories. They wrote uh, about coon hunting. Um, the girl's an African-American girl. She wrote a great story. I helped edit it, send it back to her, made sure the edit, and we sent it into, there's a Southern Hound magazine and they printed their story and they're just tickled pink that they've got a story in a magazine. I read um, that story. It was excellent. Yep. Uh, Ariellish. I think she yes. did a great job telling the story she and she started coon hunting with me. They ended up, they've moved back to Michigan, um, and doing good up there, but the great good. young couple, um, and it's kind of. I'm dabbling right now. I've taught school for five years and I absolutely love to teach. My master's is in education. There's probably not a job. I just, uh, I'm not going to get political, but I could not deal with the, just the liberal nonsense from the principals. And I, ended up, I your my views are welcome here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I quit. Uh, we got, um, we had an ordeal that happened. I was teaching junior ROTC had gone from science teaching that. And I don't do this. Some real disrespect to, I think, the military, our program, our cadets. And I said, I can't be part of this and walked away. But I don't want to quit being a teacher, whether I'm teaching in a public school. Uh, and one of the things I'm looking at doing now and trying to put it together, is I was, it was almost a tongue-in-cheek joke when Bobby said, if we're going to breed red bones, we've got to name our kennel. And I had had an old dog box, and I was messing around. I put, beware of wampus cats on the back of that dog box. I said, well, we're going to call them the wampus cat red bones. Um, but I started taking some of these kids that are inner city. I don't care what color they are, some white, some black, it doesn't matter uh, where they're from. Um, and I'm introducing them to fishing and to hunting. So I run an 18 foot mud boat and I take kids out that have never fished and I let them run catfish noodles with me and mm. they love it. And, and then I get them to write about it. We have fish fries and then I get some of them to coon hunt, awesome. but I've got oh, about 10 or 15 kids. And I want to, I don't know, somehow formalize it a little bit more i want to involve some other hunters and just 
get more kids that don't have the opportunity. Their dad done hunt, their uncle done hunt. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of character teaching. I think there's a lot of, you know, getting away from the, the, the phone and the internet and some of the, the, the yeah. video games. Um, but you know, as, as, so I'm going to start a YouTube channel. I'm calling it my, the Wampus Cat Outdoor channel. I haven't really got it up and running, but I'm in the early stages. I got my camera and I'm setting it up. And that's one of the things I really want to showcase. I, you know, I want to do breeding and, and training, but I also want to do hunting with kids and getting kids out that don't normally have a chance to do things like that. Well, I couldn't applaud you enough for that. those efforts and so vitally important. I'm going to put you on the spot. What is your definition of a wampus cat? <laughs> it's weird. I'd never heard that expression growing up. I had a a teacher. He was my advisor, criminal justice. He grew up in Tennessee, and he was referencing the Jerry Clower story uh, when, you know, shoot up amongst this. And he said he was up there, uh, you know, the wampus cat. Well, I went up to him after, <laughs> after class. I said, what is a wampus cat? He said, where I grew up in Tennessee, he said, it's kind of like a mythical creature, like Bigfoot or, or Sasquatch. He said, it's a mythical creature that's it's a cat and part person, and it comes out at night, and, you know, people, you know, tell wampus cat stories to kids. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, that term just always stuck with me, and I've used it, you know, now and again. And yeah, so that's, I've heard it all my life, but I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. It's unusual and uh, eye-catching for sure, for sure. Well, tell us a good story that, that maybe one that you've written about or one that was particularly enjoyable to you of your experience. It can be from your military days. It can be from, from you know, coon hunting there in Georgia or maybe up in North Carolina or what you got something that you could share that you think our listeners would uh, particularly enjoy. Okay. Before I do that, I just want to say one thing. Uh, when I talked about hunting with kids, one thing I'll say is when you yeah. post things like that on uh, Facebook and social media, what I have found across the board from the coon hunt community, when the coon hunters out there find out you're doing that, they will bend over backwards to help you. Um, Mm. Bruce Simons over in East Georgia. There's just a number of them that they've, I mean, they've put equipment in my hands. They really, if they know you're hunting with kids, they'll go, go the extra mile to help you out. Yeah. And that, uh, you know, that speaks well for our, our uh, sport for sure. Coon hunters have always, you know, they don't always get along. They get out on a night hunt. There can be disagreements and, and discussions. Uh, there can be at times jealousy or envy over who's got the better dog uh, and all these things. But when the chips are down and someone needs help, you will not find a more um, giving, um, generous, kind-hearted group uh, than the coon hunting I hate to call it a fraternity because there's a lot of women that involve, are involved in it as well. But oh, yeah. I, I have found that to be true for sure. Well, go ahead. and, and Well, here's uh, what I don't know how much I've shared this story. I was up at uh, Fort Bragg. I had hunted uh, a couple of years and you know, kind of got established up there. And my buddy uh, Bobby was, you know, stayed in, in contact with him. This is long before, you know, really getting into internet. So I would call him regular. He was still hunting some blue dogs, had his big blue dog named Jason that I've wrote about. Um, I do not know how I came into knowledge, but I came into knowledge of a blue tick male um, that was for sale. And I wanted to try him. And I went and picked him up and uh, I got him on a trial. The dog's name was Rock. And the first thing I know, he was a very large hound. So I knew nothing of him. And I called a friend of mine uh, named Ralph, who was up in Spring Lake in, uh, or Lillington. I said, I'm going to try a dog. You want to go? And he said, okay. So he brought, he had a little English female he brought. Well, normally I would check what was open on post and what wasn't. I wasn't planning on hunting that night. So I didn't check what was open. I just figured I'm going to open it. So we went out, there's a creek runs north-south along the east side of Sicily drop zone, which is the biggest drop zone on Fort Bragg. It's where majority of their airborne operations uh, get started. So we turned the two dogs loose, sent them north on this jump and run creek. And it's a nasty area. It's just full of briars and brambles. And they got in there, I don't know, maybe two, 300 yards. His little female opened up. She was kind of squealy mouth. And that rock dog opened up. And I've been hunting since 95. So I've got what, close to 30 years of doing this. 
From that day till this day, I have never in my life heard a dog that had a mouth like this dog. He didn't bawl. He roared. I mean, it was just a wall. It rattled the trees. It was just mind-blowing loud. I thought, holy smoke. I have (laughs) never heard a dog like that. And to this day, have not. Well, as luck would have it, I like Ralph, and he was a good guy. Some of his dogs were a little trashy. I think this dog jumped on a fox because they left the creek heading straight to high ground. And unfortunately, the blue dog rock was right there with her. Seconds later, I heard the unmistakable drone of C-141 Starlifters coming towards that drop zone. I was like, oh, no, they're getting ready to do a parachute jump. So here comes, I think it was like three or four of them flying trail formation. They fly about 1,200 feet across that drop zone. They were I didn't know at the time. They're doing a proficiency jump. One of the support units had to get a, a night jump in. So they bail out, and there's parachutes up in the air, the drone of jets, and they pass on by. And that female had already crossed that drop zone in the noise. Well, Rock was way behind her, and he started blue ticking along. He got up on that drop zone. I drove, and you could just hear this, oh, Oh, and he started tracking. Well, I could hear, you know, there's the paratrooper, it's dark, but they're out there on that drop zone. And I heard somebody yell, excuse the language, what the hell is that? And I heard a female <laughs> scream and I could hear people running. Well, he's, he don't, he's just following that track going through them. These people are, I mean, they're, they're scared. They don't know what's coming at him. And Ralph said, you're either going to get court-martialed or arrested. And I said, we got to catch that dog. So I turned my my little yellow uh, parking lights on. Luckily for me, I had a white uh, Chevy with black fender flares, just like the range control guys had. (laughs) Excuse me. So I started driving across the drop zone, weaving in and out of parachutes and paratroopers. I was like, oh, heaven, I'm going to get some colonel run up here, and he's going to have me. But I got across that drop zone. I caught caught that blue dog. (laughs) And, uh, and we got out of there and I never heard anything about it, but I've always kind of laughed and said, you know, that would have been probably 1998. So any of those soldiers out there, they're probably retired by now. They're probably in their <laughs> mid to late forties to fifties. And I'll bet they're still telling a story about whatever yeah. creature they thought was coming out of that swamp across that drop zone. Cause I definitely don't think they thought it was a dog. No, that's a great story. And, uh, I can only imagine what was going through your mind when you heard those aircraft coming over. Well, you knew what was going on, but yeah, I should have uh, uh, yeah. cleared the area. We've uh, <laughs> and I've had uh, dogs get out of pocket on posts and and get into areas that there's training going on. I actually had uh, I was on Fort Bragg and I had a Walker dog. He was treed and he was a 120 bark a minute tree dog. It was in the summertime. And I was trying to get to him, and he just quit treat. And that's before we had the GPSs. We had the old handheld mm-hmm. trackers. Well, I didn't bring the tracker with me, and I could not find him. And I was like, it is not like him to pull a tree. And I ended up, uh, I found two soldiers. Had uh, They made a, took a piece of parachute cord, and they had him on a leash. And I was like, hey, what are y'all doing? They said, uh, well, we found this dog over there. I said, yeah, he's a hunting dog. He said, well, he wasn't hunting. He was just standing at a tree barking. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, well, that's what he's supposed to do. There was a raccoon in that tree. Like, no kidding. Well, that brings up a question for me. Uh, I know that if – do you have to be on active duty in order to get permission to hunt on those uh, military bases? Each one of these posts handles their hunting different. And I've been on, you know, being close to 30 years in the military, I've been on quite a few of them. And I would say, hands down, Fort Benning is the easiest and the best one for hunting that I've seen. Um, But the way Fort Benning is, you're either going to have to be um, retired military or active duty to hunt. And there's a a little class you got to take. You got to get your Fort Benning hunt permit. And then there's a, a website you go on. It'll tell you what areas are open, what areas are closed. And then you can sign in to up to two areas. And then when you're done hunting, you sign back out. Um, but you know, back in the nineties, when I was hunting here, it was an open post. So there were coon hunters that just slipped in and hunted and it had a pretty sparse coon population where now, uh, I only know of two coon hunters hunting this post and I'm one of them and you have a much better population. And it's, I count myself to be blessed because it's 200 square miles of property. Um, and it's, it's pretty good coon hunting. 
Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I always enjoy going through uh, there with the the uh, towers, the, with the statues there at Fort Benning. Yep. On what is that? Two eighty. Uh, it is. Yeah, and uh, it's it's very very impressive. And I might I think I mentioned to you when we were kind of uh, planning this podcast that my dad was stationed there. Uh, you know, he went in the army in 1939, and uh, uh, his first tour overseas was in Iceland. He was in a combat engineer's outfit, and okay. uh, they built airstrips and so forth. So he was fighting the Germans in the frost, and then at the end <laughs> of the war, he was in New Guinea for a couple of years building airstrips out of coral, and all you know for that effort. And all he got home and. I believe in September of 1945 is when he got out. Okay. uh, Yeah, so. Have you been to the new uh, Infantry Museum on Fort Benning? I have not. In fact, I need to stop there. I need to plan the next trip I do up that way is just plan some time there. Because I'm, you know, blowing through, heading up to to Nubbin's place, and we usually have got a a coon hunting destination somewhere in mind, like Autumn Oaks or, or whatever. And so, but yeah, tell me about it. Yeah. So they've got, uh, you know, for years they've had the Instrument Museum, but they've, they were kind of smart. They built the new museum is outside of the actual post itself. So you don't have to come through any gate. Anybody can go through it. And it's a little less of a normal museum where it's just a bunch of artifacts. It's kind of a experiential type of, so when you go in, you walk down a, like a long corridor and they call it the, the last hundred yards. And you literally go from, a, you know, they got these life-size, very realistic looking statues. So you walk through one of the battles of the Revolutionary War, then up through the Civil War. You know, it takes you through World War One, II, Korea, and then all the way up to the, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan uh, type. And, you know, and then when you go through the museum, it's just it's very well laid out. And you go from, you know, a time period to a time period these different wow. wings off it but it's it's a well-run museum and it's it's definitely worth a stop for anybody that's in this in this vicinity i would definitely encourage them to come here well i'm sure you can find it on where would we get information as, as to how to, to where to go just go to google and type uh, uh fort benning infantry museum gotcha. which fort benning is about to be changed to fort moore here in a matter of weeks um mm. but type infantry museum that's that's one of my jobs right now that I'm, you know, I'm not a school teacher now. I'm working contracting and uh, changing the name. Just changing all the signs is a uh, monumental task itself. Well, I would ask why, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure that'll be, a, that well, would so be. Here's, a, you know, won't get political. Um, so they've made the decision that every one of the Southern posts that was named after a Confederate. So that's Fort Bragg, Fort Stewart, Fort Benning, uh, Fort Lee, Fort Hood, Fort Polk. There's six right there. I think there's eight total. They're all getting a name change. Um, so, you know, history is what it is. I grew up, uh, you know, on Fort Benning and would have personally liked to see it stay Fort Benning. But the one positive thing I'll say is changing it to Fort Moore, um, it's named after Hal Moore. And if you watch the movie We Were Soldiers um, with Mel Gibson based off the We Were Soldiers Once and Young by uh, mm-hmm. by Hal Moore, it, he yeah. is an outstanding American. They named the post after him and his wife, uh, both outstanding Americans. He was a, you know, a great soldier, a great leader, and a great American. So at least they're naming it after somebody worthwhile. Sure. Yeah. That's all I'll say. Well, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure. And I, I would... Uh, my good friend Al Medcalf. Have you met Al? He's from Georgia. No, but he I hunts, know the name. I yeah, see him, he uh, hunts I see him cur- online. Yeah, yeah. He hunts, uh, well, he has a potpourri there of dogs. He hunts some plots. He has some cur dogs. He has some some uh, leopards, I think. But, okay. uh, yeah, uh, Al really likes his his Confederate heritage and yep. uh, has been very much involved with uh, preservation and preservation of the cemeteries and all that so well chuck this has been an enjoyable visit and i i really hope that uh we've been at it here about a an hour and three minutes uh here in the world headquarters for gone to the dogs the uh 
the lady that runs this place is is not here, and our dog is not happy about something. I don't know if you can hear him in the background. <laughs> I can't. Well, that's good because he, there's a there's about a twenty pound dachshund that runs this place. <laughs> uh, he's a black and tan. He looked like a hound, but he's got long hair. But anyway, I hear Louie back there telling me I maybe uh, we better cut this one short for now. But I, I do want to give you the opportunity. Is there something that uh, that you'd like to talk about that we haven't discussed today? Hmm. It, just I'll just throw this out there. So I'm here at uh, the Fort Benning area, work, uh, work on the post um, as a contractor. I'm sure plenty of your readers spread across uh, the United States know somebody or will know somebody um, that joins the Army Goes to Base Training. If you ever have a family member um, and they are stationed at Fort Benning, going through training here, uh, get them in contact with me. I'm on social media and, and have them call me. I'll either take them fishing, I'll take them coon hunting, I'll take them to church, I'll take them to eat barbecue. And if they grew up coon hunting, I will definitely, uh, I'll put them... Uh, Put them in the woods and, and put them with a dog. Well, that's a great invitation, guys out there. Listen up. He's on Facebook as Charles Pudel. That's spelled P-U-D-I-L. And uh, come to the uh, Coon Hunting Conversations page, and you'll see Chuck's writings. Uh, I hope that you'll continue to write, Chuck, because they're very much enjoyed and uh, and. Uh, I, I definitely would like to get back with you again. I'm sure you've got a lot more stories to tell. I do want to publicly thank you for your service and your, especially uh, also to thank you for the work that you're doing with the young people. It's critical. It's absolutely critical that we save this country, and we're going to do it by winning the hearts and minds of those young people. And I just thank you so much for coming on today, Chuck, and uh, wish you a great day and uh, hunting down there in those Georgia swamps. Just watch out for those snakes and the gators. <laughs> I, I face the same thing down here in Florida, so I know what you're up against. Well, huge thanks for having me on, and I look forward to meeting you in person. You got an open invite to come here and hunt, go uh, see the infantry museum with me, or just uh, go get a meal. Well, I'm going to call you before the next time, and that probably will, will be just before Labor Day. If you're going to be around, I'll give you uh, uh, drop you a text or a call, and we'll try to get together for a cup of coffee or whatever, and uh, I'll certainly look forward to that. Folks, uh, that's going to uh, wrap up our podcast for today. Uh, really pleased to have our guest, uh, Charles Pudell from Georgia. Uh, he's been a great guest for us. Uh, I will remind you that I do have copies of Gone to the Dogs, A Coon Hunter's Journey. They are available on my website, stevefielderbooks.com. There are also a few of the trucker or uh, ball cap style hats with the Gone to the Dog logo. If anyone asks you where Steve Fielder, you'll be pretty safe if you tell him why he's gone to the dogs. Mm-hmm.